0: His Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Daniel Mahoney is professor of political science at Assumption College. He's well known to First Things readers and listeners. We've had him on before. He's the author of, among other things, The Conservative Foundations of Liberal Order, Defending Democracy Against Its Modern Enemies and Immoderate Friends. The uh, The Idol, of our age. How the religion of humanity subverts Christianity. And the co-editor of the Solzhenitsyn Reader, uh, he had a powerful commentary that got picked up by Real Clear Politics with the title, What Does Our Nation Mean to Us? Rejecting the Culture of Hate, which we shall discuss. But first, uh, first of all, welcome. Welcome, Professor Mahoney. Oh, glad to be back, Mark. All right. Well, before getting to the little essay, let's just go back to 2018 briefly with the book on, quote, the religion of humanity. Do you want to just give us a a quick three-minute reprise of the thesis of that book? How the religion of humanity, what is it, and how does it undermine Christianity?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the, the term religion of humanity was first used in the middle of the 19th century, by Auguste Comte in France, who actually started a religion, the religion of humanity, and declared himself the high priest of it. Uh, But also it was used favorably by John Stuart Mill, who, by the way, used to send a yearly allowance to Auguste Comte and wrote a book on Auguste Comte called Auguste Comte and Positivism. In any case, Comte believed that human beings needed to free themselves from what he called all metaphysical thinking, from any asking of what he called why questions. we were only allowed to ask so-called scientific how questions. And also we needed to do away with such niceties as self-government and turn ourselves over to the uh, the rule of experts. But Cobb also thought that any deference to something transcendental or higher was not only false but destructive of humanity so as he put it the human being is the uh the grand etre the great being the supreme being
0: i didn't know i was a supreme being oh i
1: like i like that yeah 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 but you know the 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 idea of human self-deification uh is i think the is quite explicit in this official humanitarianism of course the argument of my book is While very few people signed on to Comte's movement, with the exception of the rulers of the New Republic in Brazil, who were Comteans, uh, many people sort of unofficially have adopted this view that, that includes scientific positivism, a deference to expertise, and especially a kind of anthropocentrism that puts the human will at the center of all things. And I think the more radical claim of my book was that um, humanitarianism in the guise of social justice, doctrinary egalitarianism, this worldly transformation had dramatically impacted and even had begun to transform the transcendental religions themselves. You know, uh, from liberation theology to the sort of singular focus on social problems uh, at the expense of attention to the soul you know all of this is so evident i, th- I think it's evident in the pontificate of the, of the present uh, pope in rome so i uh, i see humanity i see too many christians for example who are uh, wholly unwilling to acknowledge that the religion of humanity is a different religion than the one we profess and one ultimately subversive of both Free and decent politics, but also the integrity of biblical religion itself
0: do you think that recent circumstances the the pandemic on the one side and the, and the woke revolution and maybe the reactions to all of it the, do the, does that reinforce has that reinforced your your take? on things, or has, has has it altered your sense of this religion of humanity? Oh,
1: no, no, no. I, I, it's it's merely confirmed what I didn't need confirmed. Uh, look, I think um, you read something like Manzoni's novel, The Bethroned, which talked about a plague in northern Italy several centuries ago. Priests went out to the sick, knowing that they were at terrible risk, but they they ministered. Of the sick in the spirit of the gospel. The fact that the churches, not just the Roman Catholic Church, but all of the major uh, Christian denominations, sort of succumbed to an ideology of health and safety. And I don't mean people taking prudent measures uh, to, to make sure people do not unnecessarily get sick and die. I mean the seizing of public worship, the seizing to minister the last rites to the to the dying and all of this this suggests a religion so imbued with the humanitarian spirit that it confuses the abdication of its responsibility with a higher human humanitarian sensibility and woke despotism is simply humanitarianism on steroids humanitarians have always believed that political liberty self-government is dispensable it's always believed that certain positions, as Eric Vogel and the political philosopher like to say, thinkers like Comte and Marx basically told people they disagree with to shut up. You know, Marx says in the Communist Manifesto that any objections to communism raised in the name of philosophy, religion, or natural justice should not even be addressed or considered. In other words, you can't ask those, you can't ask those questions. You know, and again, all of this is done in the name of justice and liberation and emancipation. Also, um, I think one of the paradoxes of, uh, of of this radical secular humanism that I call humanitarianism or the religion of humanity is there's a lot of talk about humanity, but there's not much decency. There's not much respect for real human beings. And um, um, I think we see this in movements like BLM. Shameful that a a Marxist organization that doesn't believe in common humanity, common morality, the civic tradition of the United States would be esteemed and supported ritualistically by so many in our society, including including leading corporations. But um, the, the premise that some groups are, by definition, victimizers, uh, and other people are, by definition, pure because they are victimized. This is a repudiation of the, the entire anthropology that has undergirded Western civilization. And it's totalitarian, because if you believe people to be ontologically guilty because of who they are, the privileged, rather than what they've done, there is no principled reason or objection to tyrannizing, terrorizing, or killing such people. You know, in other words, the logic is not a logic of mutual accountability and human freedom. It's a logic of oppression and suppression. So, again, not much humanitarianism is much softer than this, Uh, people who wouldn't dream of hurting a fly, but they have no principled ground for rejecting what I would call hard despotism or totalitarian uh, humanitarianism.
0: I, I have to say that, you know, I was a liberal in my 20s and 30s even, through the 90s, and one of the things that shook my liberalism was being in academia, where so much of the woke stuff started. I, I saw, I would I'd be in a, in a closed meeting room with 15 liberals uh, and two or three hard leftists. And the hard leftists were very good at pushing policies that were outright illiberal. They were contrary to fundamental liberal beliefs that everyone else in the room had. But I saw the, the the a small group of leftists just lead the liberals in the room, very smart and generally good people, lead them wherever they wanted to lead them. And so and I just gradually realized that something about liberalism, not just a local problem here, you know, at my university or these people in the room, but something generally about liberalism simply doesn't have the wherewithal, the conviction, whatever it is, to tell the left, because I guess of the, the moral standing of the identitarians that they called upon, um, they couldn't stop them. And I thought, why, why are you so conciliatory to things that are directly opposed to your own principle? Why did that why did that happen Dan
1: Well I mean I mean I think you you summed up things very nicely This is really a, sen- a phenomenon going back 2 and a quarter centuries to the French Revolution the moral and civic abdication of the center you know the French Revolution started with a group of people they were called the monarchians they they wanted English style liberty they wanted a constitutional monarchy they were outmaneuvered in a month or two by radicals, who were quickly outmaneuvered by more radicals. So by the time you hit 1792 or 1793, somebody who was a real radical like Danton is a moderate compared to the even more consistent terrorism and tyrannizing of Robespierre. And that phenomenon of uh, pas, uh, pas d'en, uh, à gauche, no enemies to the left, it's been around for over two centuries. I mean, of course there were honorable liberals in uh, the 20th century who stood up to communism, but they were if not far and few between, they were a small group of people and most of them eventually moved to the right exactly because of the syndrome you noted. They started to see the intrinsic inability of liberalism to defend itself against totalitarian currents to the left. I think we saw this in the 60s. M- Midge Dechter wrote a book uh, about liberal parents and, uh, and radical children, you know, that the indulgence of liberals, the inability to say no, to open and aggressive nihilism. I think we saw it with many intellectuals who were not remotely communist, but who, you know, saw in the more what Henry Harry Hopkins, an advisor, maybe even a Soviet spy, we think today, uh, to chief advisor to FDR, said about the Soviet Union, it was the New Deal in a hurry. You know, you know, I mean, such silliness. There's the famous chapter in Solzhenitsyn's First Circle, when Mrs. R, the wife of a prominent American politician, Goes to visit some Soviet prisons and camps. In the in the particular case, the Butriki prison. Prison, and she sees a she's presented with a Potemkin village where, you know, people are fewer. People are in the cells. Everyone's hair is buzzed. Uh, they have Bibles and Korans, and she is praising you know the remarkable achievements in penal justice in the Soviet Union. And that was based on real visits by people like Henry Wallace and Mrs. Roosevelt to the Soviet Union at the end of World War II, where they were hoodwinked. We saw that under Mao's China. Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the famous uh, Can- uh, Prime Minister of Canada, went to China during the Great Leap Forward, where 50 million peasants were starved to death, and he denied that anything untoward was going on, you know? Walter Duranty in Moscow during uh, uh, the, the collectivization and famines that killed uh, millions and millions of people saying all was well and winning a Pulitzer Prize. So, But I think in the 60s, we really saw it. We saw uh, the liberal university was under assault, and so few liberals were willing to stand up to the new left, to the hard left, or or even in the anti-war movement. It's one thing to say, as some realists did, that the war in Vietnam was imprudent or the wrong wrong choice of war at the wrong time. It's another thing to uh, uh, wax uh, poetic about the glories of uh, agrarian communism under Ho Chi Minh. It was as terroristic as any communist regime on earth. So it's a very, uh, and I've seen it, I began teaching in 1986, and uh, whenever the word diversity is mentioned, liberals succumb. They succumb to moral panic. They succumb to ideological racialism. They act cowardly. You know, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go, as they chanted at Stanford in 1988. So it's a syndrome. It's gotten much worse. And it's now tied to what Sir Roger Scruton called the culture of repudiation Uh, an often ignorant but uncompromising desire to um, just eliminate are civilized inheritance. My silly colleagues will say things like, well, they already know the Western tradition. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they know nothing, as as you well you know from teaching. Nothing. And yet they supposedly know the Western classics or the American civic tradition by osmosis. Well, they don't. What they, what they do tend to know if they know anything is the ideological cliches that they've learned from kindergarten through
0: college. Yeah. In your commentary on uh, the culture of hate, uh, the the little piece that came out a a couple of weeks ago, you begin with a reference to what you call, quote, nihilistic silencing. Now, the the leaders of silencing efforts that we've seen, the canceling, cast their work in highly moral terms of of justice and and dignity and anti-hate, not nihilistic terms. You just don't buy it.
1: I don't buy it at all. You know the premises of postmodernism, the premises of critical theory, the premises of paramarxism, and all these intellectual currents are in the air, and they inform cancel culture, and they inform a movement like BLM. Uh, these people do not believe in common humanity. They they um, all the distinctions necessary to systematic uh, uh, civilized life. The distinctions between authority, authoritarianism, um, legitimate authority and power and domination, you know, uh, mutual accountability versus uh, in a coerced community, all, this. all those distinctions are erased. So you, um, they have no grounds for affirming justice. They have rejected natural rights. They have rejected biblical religion. They have rejected trans-historical truth. So this messianic fervor, you find it in thinkers like Derrida. They're all for messianic justice. But they have no grounds for justice. They have no grounds for civic community or racial reconciliation. They have anger, and they have limitless and toxic moralism. But nothing... It's a spirit of negation. Nothing good. Nothing permanent. Nothing enduring. You know, Aristotle says the common good is rooted in the capacity to put reasons and actions in common. And I would suggest that the premises and the spirit that animates these people, at the academic level, and now in the uh, the street movements, uh, and and in the uh, cancel culture at abroad in our social and cultural institutions, it just has nothing to do with justice. So a lot of people say, oh, the conservatives were wrong because they used to talk about relativism, and what we're really facing is moralism. We're facing both. Indigna- uh, radical ind- moral indignation is the other side of relativism because uh, moral reasoning rec- uh, recognizes proportion, restraint. Limitless anger is not in accord with serious moral judgment. So once you throw out the common, once you throw out human nature, once you throw out natural right or justice, then indignation can be limitless and no argument, no um, objection needs to be considered. It's going back to Marx telling um uh, Uh, the advocates of traditional religion and philosophy to shut up.
0: Yeah, just shut up.
1: Yeah, shut up. And again, how is that compatible with Republican self-government, which is all about ruling and being ruled in turn to Aristotle? It's about, you know, this is what the, the courts have missed in the last 70 years. The First Amendment has nothing to do per se with free expression, you know, pornography or burning flags. It has to do with the speech necessary for searching for truth and for living together in a Republican political community. So, uh, yeah, no, it's a a fraud that these people have morality and justice on their side. It's what Goethe said about Mephistopheles, the spirit that forever negates. You know, Dostoevsky had it right in The Demons.
0: I was going to say you refer to The Demons. What did... Dostoevsky see in that book or show in that book that is most applicable to today's moment?
1: He saw everything. He saw, first of all, more than a few people. Gary Saul Morrison in the Wall Street Journal have noticed that American intellectuals, especially on the left, the denizens of the cancel culture, of the culture of repudiation, they have the souls of Russian intelligence. you got to remember in Russia, the category intellectual or being a member of the intelligentsia excluded Dostoevsky, Chekhov, Gogol, Tolstoy because they were serious men and they did not bandy about ideological cliches or show limitless indulgence toward revolutionary terrorism. So It was an ideological category. And so many American intellectuals today are like these Russian intelligents. Dostoevsky wrote a novel based on real events, looking at some of these populist revolutionaries that he had read about in the press and that had gained a great deal of attention during that period of the 1860s and 70s, And uh, in this book, he shows several things that are extremely relevant. One, the fawning and indulgence of the bourgeoisie, of the educated elite toward open nihilists, And advocates of violence and even tyranny. So there are these characters, their property, they're sometimes in positions of government responsibility, and they fawn before those who are really intent on destroying them. Secondly, he shows that the spirit undergirding these movements is infinitely more destructive than positive. Once again, that spirit of ideological negation. Thirdly, he shows that they uh, partake of an ideological Manichaeanism. This relates to a major theme in Solzhenitsyn, too, that you localize evil in some who are objectively and intrinsically, you might say ontologically evil, and you could dispense with those people. And the rest are pure and somehow freed from original sin or human imperfection. Dostoevsky made a great prophecy in The Middle of the Demons, he said, if these nihilist revolutionaries ever come to power, a hundred million people will perish. And he wasn't wrong. He got I, that I about mean, right. He got that about right. So, and I would add, um, one of the, and the, the militant atheism, uh, the, the neglect of anything higher, reducing everything to social action which they share in in common with soft humanitarians. He he highlighted that. Lastly, one of the characters, one of the nastier characters in The uh, Demon says, you know, our goal is to destroy anything that stands apart or above. So I can't remember the exact formulation, but it includes poking out Shakespeare's eyes and cutting off Cicero's tongue. You know, in other words, silencing the voices of the past, of inherited wisdom, of human excellence in literature, philosophy, politics, etc. In other words, the culture of repudiation in its most terroristic form. So it's all there. And of course, the ineptitude of the government, which doesn't take seriously the threat posed by uh, revolutionary nihilism and terrorism. So, uh, uh, Camus actually wrote a play uh, based on uh, The Possessed because uh, he he thought it captured the, um, you know, the sort of moralistic nihilism undergirding totalitarianism and the totalitarian temptation
0: better than any book ever written. And I think he's probably right. You know, you say at at one point that the cultural revolution we're in now is marked by, quote, voluntary servitude or self-enslavement. American democracy risks committing suicide. H- has this happened before? W- w- were the 60s the same kind of self-enslavement? I mean, I mean voluntary obedience? Or, or is, this, is this different?
1: This is different. Uh, with the liberal intellectuals, yes. And um, the same thing in France with the May 68 movement. But notice, you know, Richard Nixon got reelected in 1972 with 49 states. After the May events where the liberal university was under systematic assault, you had an open revolutionary situation in Paris. It looked like De Gaulle's Fifth Republic might collapse. The elections a month later, after De Gaulle was able to reverse things, The uh, Gaullists and their allies won, you know, three-fifths, two-thirds of the seats in the National Assembly. So public opinion was not very indulgent toward these people. Uh, They saw through the nihilism. They were appalled by it. The intellectuals were not, or were less so. I mean, there's heroes from those periods, Raymond Aron in France, Sidney Hook in this country. But I would say that there was more solidity to the political and moral order, although there was a lot of madness, too. I just read an article in the new issue of the Claremont Review books, a typically brilliant article by Christopher Caldwell, called American Cowering, America Cowering. And he gives, I mean, it's a, it's a rich analytic argument and he even makes an argument about how COVID has, and the, and the COVID regime has fed into this self enslavement. But he gives example after example uh, in politics, in culture, in the academy, in entertainment, and uh, in sports, where the, uh, sur- uh, the where where the uh, actions taken by prominent people have been uh, they have preempted the cancel culture. These have been acts of self-annulling, of self-humiliation, um, uh, of uh, just, you know, cowardly surrender without a fight. A kind of cowering, as uh, Caldwell puts it. And I, rec- I recommend this article to everyone. It. it
0: I read it last night, and, yeah, the list of examples of the, 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 the apologies, the, the self, you know, the self-humiliation by a, a lot of figureheads, you, you, you think this, this, is, uh, this is off the chart. We, did, we, did we see these kinds of self-humiliations in, in prior moments, like in the 60s?
1: I think we saw it on the part of um, administrations. At Cornell, at Columbia, they did surrender to pretty nasty elements, the Black Panthers, uh, uh, the SDS, etc. Um, and I would say that the spirit of endless accommodation to the demands of the left in the academic world really goes back to that moment. Although it was, while there was there was the Black Power movement and the Black Panthers, identitarianism has. Really needed something like postmodernism and critical theory to take on its truly uh, pathological form. So yes, there are some parallels, but this is deeper. This is the forms of safe self-abasement, of humiliation, of um, you know the 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 Dostoevsky novel was called Demons, and you know he 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 gets his title from the famous episode of the Gadarene swine in the Gospel of Matthew where. These demons are driven by Jesus into pigs, but the idea somehow there's a virus, there's a possession, there's a, and that's what I see. Uh, uh, um, you know, maybe it's a kind of deeply perverse uh, intellectual contagion, or you know, Gerard might say, you know, you know, mimetic desire, or some kind of. Uh, the rapidity by which otherwise self-respecting people end up pleading guilty and repeating mindless and threatening clichés, uh, it's, uh, it's quite stunning, and I think Caldwell captured that very well. I mean, it's as if American civil society not only lost its nerve, but as importantly, it lost its self-respect. I mean, this kind of self-debasement is ugly. It's uh, and especially when you're debasing yourself before thugs and uh, you know, pe- ideological terrorists. Uh, and uh, where's the, you know, where's the manliness? Where's the the, the desire to defend one's honor? Um,
0: you, you know, uh, l- last question, Dan. You say. To affirm the moral law, the natural law, the spirit of the Ten Commandments, the true ground of all human dignity, is now said to be an indelible mark of racism. Now, th- this, this defense of Ten Commandments' moral law, uh, it would seem that the churches should rise up and say no to this, that the Ten Commandments does give us a more just society, that the natural law, the moral law, gives us greater dignity and equality, we absolutely reject this. Are the churches doing that? A few.
1: I mean, not a few churches, a few churchmen. No, I think too many of them are de facto humanitarians or liberationists or progressivists who've bought into this notion that our tradition, our wisdom, which is, in some sense, universal wisdom that St. Paul speaks about the law, you know, written on the hearts of man, natural law, to treat that as if it's somehow sullied by by the unique evil or culpability of the West. I think progressive Christians, really, and progressive Jews believe that. And, um, you know, in the midst of the assault on St. juniper Pera, who was a very good man and a friend of the Indians, the, ascent, uh, the assault on uh, Louis IX in St. Louis, who was maybe the greatest Christian king of the of, uh, Middle Ages, the assault, the, the burning of statues of the Virgin Mary, the burning of piles of Bibles by the mob in Portland. The churches have been pretty tepid. In responding to this, they don't seem to appreciate or acknowledge that the anthropology, the understanding of man, human nature, undergirding the movement is deeply anti-Christian. And frankly, you know, they don't seem to believe in not only the revealed truths of the faith, but, um, you know, what the Church used to call right reason and natural law, you know, that the bedrock, the decalogue, the You know, how to live in a culture where admiring Lincoln's opposition to slavery or affirming that all lives matter have become definitions of racism is surreal and Orwellian. And I think the churches have played a role in this by not doing enough to uphold, defend, an authentic understanding of the human person, an authentic understanding of justice and moral obligation. They've succumbed to this angry humanitarian moralism, or at least been c- cowards before it. And, uh, But then again, you know, there were many Christians who admired communist regimes that specialized in murdering their co-religionists. So we should, like, like in China, we should not be so surprised... Uh, The rot is many decades old, but I think we're all shell-shocked by the alacrity by which it's triumphed in so many hearts and minds and so many cultural institutions. Mm.
0: Professor Dan Mahoney, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.